Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Today on the show, I welcome Dr. Isabella Wentz. Dr. Wentz is an internationally acclaimed thyroid specialist, a pharmacologist, and a New York Times bestselling author. Now, if you're experiencing symptoms like chronic fatigue or overdependence on caffeine, <clears throat> calling myself out there, brain fog, trouble concentrating, decreased sex drive, oh no, anxiety attacks, poor memory, or cold intolerance, well, you may be suffering from adrenal dysfunction. Isabella's latest book, Adrenal Transformation Protocol, a four-week plan to release stress symptoms and go from surviving to thriving, offers a straightforward program to help you balance your cortisol levels, build resilience to stress, and upregulate your adrenal function. And Dr. Wentz has dedicated her career to addressing the root causes of disease, specifically autoimmune thyroid disease, after being diagnosed with Hashimoto's in 2009. In our conversation, we explore how conventional medicine fails to recognize and properly treat adrenal dysfunction. Isabella delivers a masterclass overview of the adrenal glands, the hormones they produce, how stress and other factors can create imbalances, and what protocols we can adopt to get our adrenals functioning optimally. Okay, before we dive in, I want to let you know about some of our programs on the Commune course platform. If you're interested in courses on functional medicine, nutrition, gut health, Ayurveda, and hormone balancing, well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all-access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 100 courses on spiritual and physical health. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite pod catcher. It makes a huge difference. Okay, without further delay, I present to you Dr. Isabella Wentz. Isabella Wentz, great to be with you. Thanks for being with us here on the Commune Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah. So first of all, congratulations on your impending book release, Adrenal Transformation Protocol. Um, I'm familiar with the gestation process of books and uh, <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're getting close to the finish line. So well done. Um, and, you yeah. know, I think um, the topic of this book is so important because it really addresses a condition that so many people have, but don't necessarily know that they have it. And specifically, I'm talking about adrenal dysfunction that can dysregulate the healthy production of hormones and really make you feel very suboptimal and downstream can even lead to disease. So maybe we can just start there with some of the most common symptoms of adrenal dysfunction. Mm, absolutely. So when we get into this state of adrenal dysfunction, we essentially get stuck in a chronic stress response. And people will say they feel overwhelmed. They have trouble waking up in the morning. They have brain fog. They have fatigue. They feel irritable, anxious, 
They feel like their vitality has just been significantly diminished. They may report having a 3 p.m. crash where right around 3 p.m. they just get super tired or super anxious. As the day goes on, they might get a little bit more energy throughout the evening, but usually they'll have a second wind, which is very frustrating when you've been tired the whole day and all of a sudden you get this burst of energy in the evenings. It's not usually like a good energy. It's more of like an anxious energy of all the things you wish you would have done that day. And people will have a hard time falling asleep. They have unrefreshing sleep. They may wake up multiple times throughout the night. And essentially, they get disconnected from our circadian rhythm where their body doesn't know when it's time to be awake and have good energy and when it's time to rest and regenerate and replenish. And they'll have things like cravings for salt, cravings for alcohol. They'll be addicted to caffeine to get them going in the morning. They'll be addicted to sugar for energy. And, you know, people are always, most people care about their health and their well-meaning, but they don't realize that they get stuck in that stress response and they're almost on autopilot in that kind of very reactive, overwhelmed state. Yeah, I think so many people can um, resonate with that, you know, needing coffee in the morning, um, you know, to get that jolt of energy to get into the day and then feeling like you need that glass of wine at the end of the day to sort of take the edge off. And, you know, over time, like you say, you know, like you say in the book, it can lead to this feeling of wired and tired um, and can contribute to insomnia. And obviously the importance of sleep is well, well documented and, and discussed. So maybe let's just get into some adrenals 101, because I think people have sort of this vague sense of adrenal fatigue which you actually do a great job of reframing as adrenal dysfunction in the book, but maybe even start with some basic foundational knowledge, like what and where are the adrenal glands? They're these tiny little glands that sit on top of our kidneys, and they're responsible for the production of a variety of hormones, most importantly, our stress hormones. So the most well-known stress hormone is cortisol. And if you watch the news, if you get, you know, if you read mainstream news, you'll hear cortisol, cortisol is bad. We have too much cortisol. And that's a part of the truth, but that's a small part of the truth. So we need cortisol. We need stress hormones to survive, right? And generally we want to have cortisol output that's aligned with our circadian rhythm. So we have more cortisol in the morning to help us wake up. And this gradually goes down with time. So in the evenings, we can start resting, producing melatonin and get into like a deep restorative sleep. Now, the trouble arises when people get stuck in that chronic stress response where they might be producing too much cortisol. So all day, they're in that really wired, irritable state and they're always have a long to-do list and people around them are just so slow and not smart and they're like, you know, kind of going, 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 right? Um, then as time goes on, that cortisol release can get further um, away from what it's supposed to look like. And then they'll be on a cortisol roller coaster where they may wake up tired, then they'll have a burst of energy, then they have a crash. In the evenings, they'll have more energy again. And as the day goes, as the time goes on and you, you're stuck in that stress response, eventually a, 
person might get to what I call a flip cortisol curve, where rather than having their high cortisol in the morning to wake them up, they don't have enough cortisol in the morning. So they wake up exhausted, sluggish. They get out of bed and they're like, who am I? Where am I? Why am I here? <laughs> What's, what am I doing with my life? And the day goes on and they're still tired until the evening time kicks in and they get this burst of energy. And these people typically, they say, I'm a night owl. I just don't do well in the mornings, right? Mm-hmm. And then yeah. the the kind of advanced stage of that and some of the people that I've worked with, with autoimmunity, chronic fatigue syndrome, hypothyroidism, is they're in a constant low cortisol state. So they're not producing hardly any cortisol throughout the day, and they're not managing their immune response. They're not managing the inflammation in their body, and they end up with some kind of an autoimmune condition or pain arthritis throughout their body, and they just have this flatlined cortisol curve where they're tired all day long, and they go to bed tired, they sleep, but they still wake up the next day just as tired. And a lot of times these people are the ones that are dependent on the caffeine. And um, some terms they u- may use is a spoonie, where they say they only have so many spoons to use per day. And if they overexert themselves on doing any kind of activities and they have to rest for three days, they exercise and they have to rest mm. for a few days. They socialize, they have to rest for a few days. And they're, they're just not attuned to our day-to-day life and the stressors of day-to-day life. Mm. Yeah, that's so interesting because I think we tend to associate stress with high cortisol levels. And, um, and I think this was one of the really interesting points of the book. But as you just articulately described, that over time, that can look like an inverted curve where too much chronic stress can actually lead to low, chronically low cortisol levels. Um, And it's actually really interesting not to get too off topic, but I was just reading some of Rachel Yehuda's work who studies epigenetics um, and she was studying, you know, Holocaust victims and their subsequent progeny who were um, essentially that there was a transgenerational inheritance of of stress and trauma that was characterized by actually low cortisol levels. And I was scratching my head about that. I was like, wait, wait a minute. If they were passing on trauma generation to generation, wouldn't that actually look to, you know, wouldn't that be indicated by high cortisol levels? And then I read your book and I was like, okay, (laughs) now I think, I think I might understand some of what's happening there. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about that dance between cortisol and melatonin as it pertains to the um, circadian cycle? So the amazing thing is when we have um, cortisol output throughout the day in healthy levels, this gives us enough energy, balances our inflammation, balances our immune system. And then in the evening time, our cortisol production slows down so that we can produce more melatonin. Too much cortisol can actually suppress melatonin production. And so the people with that burst of cortisol in the evenings, those night owls, their body is actually preventing them from producing enough of of the melatonin that helps us sleep. Mm, Yeah. So as you say, there are natural crests of cortisol. So it's 
designed to go up in the morning, right? To get us more alert and into the day and then have a natural decline in the evening as melatonin is coming up. So there's a, a tango, a little dance going on. And that clock is mitigated by light. Um, and, and can you talk a little bit about how light therapy and getting the proper light at the right time of day might balance this dance between cortisol and melatonin? Absolutely. So we're, we're creatures, right? We're, we're not nocturnal creatures. <laughs> we're creatures that are very sensitive to light and we're tuned into the circadian rhythm. We've been kind of taken away from our origins through modern day life when we live in beautiful homes with, with lights, <laughs> right? With, um, with lights, which is the light bulb has been an amazing, amazing invention. At the same time, it doesn't give us the same signal to our brain that it's daytime as we would get from just stepping outside into the sunshine. So one of the ways to connect with the circadian rhythm and to let the body know that it's time to produce cortisol, that it's morning time, is when you first wake up in the morning, you step outside and our eyes can pick up the light and all of, all of the wavelengths of light and that can help us wake up and get ready to have that cortisol rise, right? So this is one of the ways that people, that I've helped people with that morning fatigue and that morning brain fog and chronic fatigue is you step outside first thing in the morning and try to spend five, 10, 15 minutes outside if you can to get some of that light into your eyes. Now, if you live you don't live in beautiful <laughs> Southern California or in Texas, Austin, or anywhere, Texas yeah. <laughs> that you can step outside, right? First thing in the morning, um, you can actually get light therapy boxes. There are lights like Dawn stimulation lights where you can have these lights inside of your home. And let's say you're waking up, you're getting ready in the morning. You can put that on for 10 to 15 minutes and that'll have the same effect. I lived in the Netherlands for a year it was an incredible experience. And also it rained every single day, almost that I was there. And so part yeah. of me being able to connect and help myself wake up in the morning, I utilized one of these beautiful lamps and they're, they're not expensive, but it's something you can definitely utilize to help yourself get going in the morning. Right. And as the day goes on, I encourage people to step outside, get into the sunshine as much as they can. And once the sun sets, you limit your exposure to lights, especially blue lights. You can do red lights and there's blue blocker glasses to really connect with your body, to let your body know that it's time to sleep, right? I used to work with um, individuals with various disabilities. And one of the challenges we always had with our clients um, with blindness was that they were not tuned into the circadian rhythm and you know there was retinal blindness in this young man's case and so his body just didn't know when it was supposed to produce melatonin because it's that connection between our retinas and the how they can sense the light and the darkness right so our, our body is amazing it's designed to help us feel energized during the day and tired at night if, if we give it the right signals
you know, one of the ways that sort of culture has hijacked um, our evolution is, you know, with the uh, the advent of 24-hour on-demand entertainment, right? And we all love that. We all love to get into that. Um, you know, I'm a sucker. I have some guilty pleasures, Succession, Ted Lasso, you know, a few of them <laughs> like that. And I'm busy during the day. And so it's, uh, it's very tempting, um, you know, to get into... The, the sort of Netflix vortex at, at night. But, you know, if you do so, you just have to be very aware of, of what's going on, which is, you know, you have a circadian rhythm and you're, as you say, the inferior part of your retina that has these neurons that are sensitive to blue light in the morning. And that sets off your pineal gland to produce melatonin at a certain time. And, you know, if you mess with that, well, <laughs> you're going to, you're going to suffer some of the consequences. So you know, we'll get into kind of finding that Goldilocks zone for cortisol. But can you um, maybe bullet point a few of the kind of detrimental impacts of having too much cortisol and then some of the, the detrimental impacts of having too little cortisol? Mm, sure. When we are in that high cortisol state, our body will prioritize survival and so it'll prioritize cortisol production over producing like our other hormones, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and also over producing beautiful hair and having good levels of metabolism. And so everything kind of gets put on hold when we're in that high cortisol state. And the body shifts into more of a catabolic state where we're breaking ourselves down for fuel. And so people, mm. when they have prolonged cortisol exposure, they're going to be at higher risk for, um, for injuries, for osteoporosis. They're going to be at higher risk for um, any kind of degenerative issues. They're going to be at higher risk for, um, for getting sick. Um, there's, it, you know, it just really does affect almost every system in our body when we're in that state. And my, my kind of, my line of work has really focused on the body really stops repairing itself mm. when yeah. we are in that high cortisol state. And so we can get into being at risk for a lot of autoimmune conditions down the road. Yeah, I was reading a couple of studies that were connecting chronic high cortisol to lower production of certain kinds of, um, uh, you know, immune cells like neutrophils and macrophages, et cetera. So essentially by having high chronic cortisol levels, you are diminishing your innate immune system, which is provides that kind of general protection. So that's a big one for me. You know, I, uh, I discovered about a year and a half ago that I was pre-diabetic was a very, very big surprise for me. And, you know, as I was trying to untangle that, I was where, you know, started to wear a continuous glucose monitor. I was like, okay, well, what's going on? Is it all dietary? Is it stress related, et cetera? And, you know, I started to then um, implicate a, a number of kind of practices in the morning, you know, sauna, meditation, put my caffeine consumption kind of delay it till later in the day. Um, 
and a low glycemic diet in combination, and I saw a great improvement with my blood glucose levels. But is there a relationship there between cortisol and, and blood glucose? Mm, absolutely. Whenever people are in that high cortisol state, we see a lot of issues with um, metabolic illnesses. So a lot of people will have high blood pressure, high blood glucose. Um, they're going to be just kind of more likely to gain weight especially yeah. in their stomach area. We have more cortisol yeah. um, receptors in our abdominal area. So people will say they have more belly fat, right? And then they're it, kind of the quintessential metabolic syndrome where you're obese, overweight, and you've got high blood pressure, you've got diabetes. So having high amounts of cortisol for a prolonged period of time can actually be a risk factor for that. Mm. Yeah, that was absolutely the case for me. You know, I would have this kind of uh, just extra adiposity just kind of right around my kind of visceral fat, essentially, right around my, you know, muffin tops and all that kind of stuff, which I think that are like uh, associated with, with high cortisol. And then, you know, but the great news is, is like you have a, some agency <laughs> over it. And fortunately, I, I was able to, to address it. Um, so what are some of the other hormones that are um, produced in the adrenals and what are some of the roles that they play? Sure. So one of the um, DHEA is, a, is another common hormone that's produced by the adrenals. It's known as our youth hormone. It can be helpful for, um, for libido purposes. It, it has a lot of roles in our immune system as well. And then another thing that people don't really recognize is that our adrenal glands actually, when women go through menopause, they take over some of the female hormone production that normally happens in the ovaries. And I had to like double check the stats, but it's something up to 70% of female wow. hormone production. And so a lot of times for a lot of women, this becomes really very relevant around um, perimenopause and menopause where they're noticing hormonal issues because they're in that stressed out state too. So um, something that can happen too is we end up with, with prioritizing more cortisol production and we don't produce enough progesterone. And this can be mm -hmm. tied to things like PMS and um, really heavy periods and estrogen dominance. This can play out in that way. And then there are mineral corticoids that are produced by the adrenal glands. And these essentially help us balance our salt and water in our bodies. So people who have not enough or too much, they might feel constantly dehydrated or they mm -hmm. might feel like they have water retention. And what about epinephrine or adrenaline? Um, and what I think a lot of people actually conflate epinephrine and cortisol because they're both associated with being stress um, hormones, I guess steroid hormones are made from cholesterol um, and often associated with the fight or flight kind of response. But what's the difference there between epinephrine and adrenaline and then cortisol on the other side? Um, so they're all hormones that are produced by the adrenal glands in response to stress. And, you know, the kind of the fight or flight hormones are going to be the 
adrenaline and epinephrine, and they're going to be more likely to be released in that acute stress response where cortisol is something that's going to be released chronically in a circadian mm. fashion. Got it. Okay. And, you know, obviously you can't separate your psychology from your physiology, right? Even though that sometimes we treat things and we treat the symptoms of mental disorders with different specialists and different drugs. And then you got to go over here to your gastroenterologist or your cardiologist or your pulmonologist or some form of other ologist. But we know that these systems are very, very interconnected and your perception of the world around you has direct impact on your hormone production. So for example, I, um, this is actually true. I was telling Wellington this before we got on yesterday. It was one of the first nice sunny days that we had in Southern California. And I went out into Fryman Canyon, which is just here above my house to take a hike. And I got down the path and I ran into a rattlesnake. Oh, wow. And then I know I was like, okay, that's cool. You know, just whatever, you know, use your top down psychology here to like overcome fear and then like two yards later i ran into another one and i'm like no nah, i'm gonna go hike somewhere else but i just bring up that um example because you know this is something that we can really everyone can relate to as pro as a product of our direct experience of life you know we come across things that we perceive as threat and then that has a, a kind of cascading effect and impacts hormones and hormone production. So can you talk a little bit about how that happens and maybe touch upon the HPA axis um, as you unravel this for us? Sure. So the HPA axis is what helps us produce our um, hormones is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And the way that our brain works is that it might sense a threat. And then when that threat registers, that our brain will tell our adrenal glands, hello, there's a threat. Let's do something about that, right? And so then our adrenal glands will, in acute stressors, they'll release all of these hormones to help us survive, right? So cortisol, adrenaline, um, norepinephrine, epinephrine. And just to kind of fuel that stress response so that, you know, you hear about people who get this superhuman strength when, you know, you hear about people lifting up cars when there were children stuck under cars. And that's kind of, that's kind of our stress hormones. Those are our adrenals helping us survive, right? And this is such a beautiful design or, you know, evolutionary process that we have to help us survive. And it works so well in acute stressors. So you've got that rattlesnake or you've got that bear and you see it and you react and you can get away from it, right? And then you kind of shake it off, right? You go about your day and things come back to normal. Maybe some people, some people need to sleep it off. Some people shake it off. They, they kind of move on with their, um, you know, stress response. So this is an acute stressor. It saves lives. The issue that we have with adrenal dysfunction is with chronic stress. So we get stuck in that stress response, right? And there's so many different drivers in our modern life that can drive us into that chronic stress response where there's not really a threat per se, 
Like there is no rattlesnake in my room, but yet I'm kind of stuck in survival mode. And this happens through, I would say, some of these micro stressors or perhaps traumatic stressors that just add up and are sort of stress bucket. Um, it's kind of my analogy, it fills up. And so if we were to have a scale of this is when I perceive stress and that I need to go into survival mode, if you get enough things on that scale, then we shift into that sympathetic um, state, mm -hmm. right? And so the goal for me is always focusing on how do we get people more safety signals to kind of set off that balance and how do we eliminate some of these stressors? Some of them we can eliminate, some of them we can't. So we have to focus on um, giving us ourselves safety signals and to giving ourselves an opportunity to be more resilient because that chronic stress state, people can get stuck in it for years. And to your point, it could be generational trauma. And you know, you think of, you hear about high cortisol and that happens in the initial stages, but I'll, I've worked with people who've been quote unquote, sick for decades, right? And a lot of them end up in that really low cortisol state. And this is where they're exhausted. They're chronically fatigued. They are mm -hmm. overwhelmed with day-to-day -day life. And this is kind of the risk we have if we don't do something about that stress. So some people you know, end up getting stuck in that high cortisol metabolic state and other people end up getting stuck in more of the, the autoimmune chronic fatigue state too. And there is a way to get out of it. So this is a predictable pattern of where the body can end up when we have too much stress and we can definitely get out. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I wish I could have said uh, that I had superhuman strength. And when I saw the rattlesnake lifted my wife above my head in an act of great chivalry. <laughs> <laughs> If we can somatically process trauma and stress and um, and uh, and get rid of it, then um, then that can have really positive physiological benefits long term. But a lot of the time, we don't have that ability. We kind of keep stress patterns um, and uh, well, what Michael Singer might call samskara, these patterns of 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 traumatic energy in our bodies that then can lead to this, these chronic states of either low cortisol or high cortisol. So you, you mentioned, you know, chronic stress, which we could categorize as sort of, you know, the, you know, the 24 hour news cycle or social media, um, et cetera. Are, are there other primary causes of adrenal dysfunction that, uh, that go along with stress? So absolutely. And I know when people talk about stress, we typically think of, you know, you have a really annoying boss or you have a deadline or somebody in your, you know, inner circles causing you a lot of drama. And that's, that's very real and very significant. I know I had a woman review one of my um, older books where I talked about this chronic stress response and all of the things we need to do to reverse autoimmunity. And she said, I didn't need to do anything. She said, I just got rid of my annoying job and my annoying boss and, <laughs> and like all of my health issues went away. And yes, sometimes it's that easy. If you, if you know exactly what the stressor is and you can get rid of it. And if that's your only stressors, then your body can shift back into that thriving state. 
But for a lot of us, we may not be aware of these stressors. So yes, there are things that are present in our day-to-day life, um, like the news, right, that we can modify. But then sometimes it's a history of traumatic stress, even generational trauma. These are things that are many of us are walking around with that are weighing us down and that are shifting our body into that HPA axis dysfunction, into that altered stress response. So studies from child abuse victims or women who have been exposed to domestic violence, um, a lot of times we look at those studies and we could see HPA axis dysfunction a long, long time after they've even been out of that situation and their stress response is altered. So uh, part of what I recommend in my book is going through an inventory and thinking about where stress might be. And, and for some people, their current life might be great, but it could be a traumatic stressor that is causing them to see the world through a different inaccurate lens so that they are you know, bleeding on people that didn't cut them because hmm. they, didn't, they didn't heal their hurt. And so that's from a you know, psychology perspective, I feel like psychologists are amazing at recognizing these. From a physiological perspective and functional medicine perspective, I think about what people are doing in their day-to-day life that is making their ancient bodies with their ancient genes feel like there's a threat really close to them. And this could be things like over-exercising, under-eating, eating foods that are inflammatory to us, sleep deprivation, and all of these habits that are so present in our modern day life, everybody's trying to, you know, kind of keep up with the Joneses and, and do all the things. These can be incredibly relevant stressors. And then, of course, the blood sugar, nutritional stressors. And then last but not least, from a functional medicine perspective, there are a lot of stresses, stressors that people may not be acutely aware of, like infections or toxins. So H. pylori infection, this can be something that's super present and kind of flares up when somebody's been under stress for a long period of time. That can cause inflammation in the body. Whenever we have inflammation, then our body responds by releasing more cortisol. So inflammation is stress. Cortisol is an anti-inflammatory hormone. And so any source of inflammation, even an injury or an infection or toxic exposure, can lead to that stress response bucket becoming overfilled and the tail, the scale tips towards survival mode. Yeah, no, it's, it's so wonderful the way that you describe all of the interconnections between these systems. So like, for example, there's a lot of different origins of inflammation. One of them is intestinal permeability, so leaky gut. Um, so that's going to cause an immune response uh, that's going to lead to chronic inflammation that then could lead to chronic cortisol uh, levels being high, which then could raise blood sugar, which then could lead to insulin sensitivity, which could lead to type 2 diabetes, which could lead to additional inflammation, which is underwrites all sorts of different kinds of diseases, both in the brain and cardiovascularly. So, you know, it, it, these things are just all connected and they're also connected to our psychology and our conscious uh, perception of the world and so this is why it's so important to uh, really understand the underlying mechanisms and then how they pair with the protocols 
um, that you so clearly outline uh, in the book and just in your work in general. And um, yeah, I think it's just great. I'm wondering um, if people have clusters of the symptoms that you know you've talked about that are concomitant with adrenal dysfunction are there good tests that one can seek out to determine whether or not they have adrenal dysfunction oh absolutely and i personally as a functional medicine practitioner i love <laughs> tests so yeah if you love testing this can be very um you can demonstrate this on a on testing very accurately and if you do the right kind of test, you'll be able to track your symptoms to your test results. The adrenal saliva test that I would recommend would be from ZRT Lab. I feel like they're the most accurate on the market. Last time, last time I did a review mm -hmm. where I could say, this person told me they have morning fatigue. Yep, there it is. There's their low cortisol. This person mm -hmm. told me that around 3 p.m. They have that 3 p.m. crash. Yep. There's that dip in cortisol right at 3 p.m. And they told me they have a hard time sleeping at night and kind of winding down in the evenings. Yep, there's that cortisol spike in the evenings. So this can be very helpful and very relevant. And then the Dutch urine test. This is a different way to test adrenals. Um, and I like this test a lot for people who maybe are dependent on caffeine and they're not able to do the saliva test, perhaps they may not be able to produce enough saliva. Some people with Sjogren's and other um, conditions where they have dry mouth aren't able to do so. And this can be done over the course of 24 hours to get a circadian pattern of your cortisol metabolites in the urine. And could also give us a, a little bit more information on neurotransmitters. That said, this test is a bit more expensive and it's a bit more tricky to interpret where I feel like most people without a medical background, they could look at their adrenal saliva test results and kind of kind of see it right before their eyes. With the, with the Dutch test, I oftentimes will recommend you work with a practitioner that's been interpreting this test for at least five years or so, because there's some, there are some intricacies. And um, for, I know your audience probably knows this, but I know I've been educating people about the adrenals for the last decade. And people will say, they'll go to their endocrinologist and they'll say, I think I have adrenal issues. Can you test me? And then they'll be tested for Addison's, which is an autoimmune condition, which um, is a very real and relevant and rare condition and not what I'm talking about with adrenal dysfunction. And so, of course, their doctor will test them for that using blood tests and they'll come up negative, right? They'll be like, you don't have Addison's. And then the conventional medical model doesn't recognize adrenal dysfunction and this kind of stuck stress response. So you typically have to pay out of pocket and find an integrative practitioner that will order these tests for you because they're considered experimental by conventional medicine. Mm, I see. So yeah, let's just touch on Addison's for a second because you brought it up because uh, I've generally understood Addison's to be associated with low cortisol production but it has a different uh, root cause, I guess you might say, from the adrenal dysfunction that you're talking about generally. Is that, is that a good understanding? Absolutely. So it's got a different root cause, and then the treatment is also different for it. So with Addison's disease, 
this is your body, your adrenal glands physically cannot produce enough cortisol and you require mm. external sources of cortisol and um, some, sometimes mineral corticoids, often mineral corticoids to survive. And this occurs where 90% of the adrenal glands have been destroyed by an autoimmune process where somebody has Addison's. With adrenal dysfunction, the body and the adrenals are still capable of producing cortisol in the right amounts at the right times, but there's a communication breakdown between the brain and between the adrenal glands and the hormones they produce because you've been under stress for so long that your body is just kind of like, okay, you know, you're still stressed. Okay. You're still stressed. And you know, some of these receptors, they can become desensitized. And so even under stress, you may not produce a healthy stress response. And the, the amazing thing is the adrenals are capable of producing cortisol in that circadian fashion. We just have to teach them how to do it again. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As I was reading the book, it was fascinating to discover the kind of cascading levels of different hormones that are produced kind of by the hypothalamus and then by the pituitary and then essentially down to the adrenals that there's little messages that are going down from each place to, um, and the brain and our nervous system and our endocrine system is so smart that, you know, you know, you describe it great, wonderfully in the book, but essentially, you know, if you're going into, you know, a, a place of excess cortisol production, well, maybe the hypothalamus or the pituitary will start, start sending new kinds of messages of like, no, 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 hold on, hold on. And then that can kind of depress cortisol levels. So it's really amazing. Um, this, the, the foundational wisdom of the body, and we really just need to I get understand it better and align with it. And, uh, and that will certainly kind of help our underlying health. I also am vaguely familiar with Cushing syndrome, um, which is, I believe associated with the X, the excessive cortisol production. Is that it, but is that, that's not particularly a focus here, is it? No. So a lot of times these are conditions that are very real and very, rare and they can be diagnosed by endocrinologists. My um, focus is really the people that are very frustrated and they're not getting the answers because yeah. what adrenal dysfunction is not a disease. It's not a disorder per se. It's essentially the body gets stuck in a stress response and mm -hmm. it's a very predictable way that the body responds to chronic stress. And the amazing thing, there's a very predictable way of getting the body out of that. So People with Cushing's disease and Addison's disease, um, they, there's a very clear medical there are very clear medical guidelines for them from the modern medicine perspective on what to do. People with adrenal dysfunction, a lot of times, you know, unfortunately, conventional medicine will say this doesn't exist, or yeah. you know, it's all in your head, or you're just depressed, or you're anxious, you need an antidepressant, or you can't sleep, you need some Ambien, right? Yeah. Yeah. And these are obviously just, you know, masking symptoms or treating acute symptoms without really addressing uh, root cause. And really that's, that's the focus of your work more generally is really getting to the root cause of these things. Um, so I want to get into some of the protocols um, that you outline in the book. 
for finding that kind of Goldilocks um, zone for cortisol. But I have actually one question that it just occurred to me earlier this morning when I was in the sauna, actually. <laughs> and that had to do with, uh, and it may be kind of just out of your purview, but because these hormones are created in the adrenals from cholesterol yeah. um, and your body endogenously produces cholesterol unless you are prescribed a statin if you happen to be have some sort of form of cardiovascular disease and you have a doctor that thinks that that's the best way to go now statins um, essentially arrest or inhibit the endogenous production of cholesterol so i'm wondering do people on statins um, because they're not producing cholesterol the precursor ingredient for the for uh, like epinephrine and for cortisol do they have some sort of dysfunction there um, because they lack the, the the ingredients absolutely so they can and sometimes people that are not that don't have enough cholesterol on board whether through statin medications or um, perhaps they're eating you know a super low cholesterol diet or they have some issues with their liver or physiology where they're not producing enough cholesterol they can get up get into that um, adrenal dysfunction chronic fatigue state because of that when it's interesting in pharmacy school, when I learned about statins, we talked about their category X for pregnancy. And why? Because we need to produce cholesterol. We need, we need right. to utilize cholesterol for producing all kinds of hormones. And so if you don't have enough of the raw materials, then you're going to have trouble producing all these other hormones, including cortisol. So in, in some mm. cases, this can definitely be a um, part of the part of the reason why somebody might have those low states of cortisol. And this is um, another kind of tangent off of that is a lot of times people will have high cortisol because they don't have some of the cofactors to properly convert mm -hmm. cortisol into pregnant or sorry, some people will have high levels of cholesterol because they don't have some of the cofactors to convert cholesterol into pregnenolone, which is uh, known as the mother hormone from which all of these other hormones are made from. And so things like vitamin A are required. Uh, um, having adequate vitamin D and sunshine is actually required for that conversion from cholesterol to pregnenolone, as is having adequate levels of thyroid hormones, specifically T3. And a lot of people... Yeah will say, I had really high cholesterol levels. My doctor did some more digging. Turned out I had a thyroid issue and I was hypothyroid. I got on thyroid hormones and guess what? My cholesterol normalized, right? So there's a little, uh, you know, I, it's not a book about cholesterol, but there, it's, it, it's all connected. Yeah, that's super interesting. Actually, this would be maybe a good time for you to talk about the interrelationship between Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism um, and adrenal dysfunction, because I know that these issues are also very close to your heart, given some of your personal biography. So can you talk about what that linkage is there? Absolutely. So my, my history of why I got into functional medicine, why I became so passionate about it 
is I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's, an autoimmune condition in my 20s after years of fatigue and all kinds of strange symptoms that nobody could really help me with. And part of the process of taking back my health was supporting my adrenals, right? And supporting my adrenals, I was able to get rid of the brain fog and the fatigue and the anxiety and the irritability and finally get refreshing sleep. This is what most people will say when they, when they get on the right levels of adrenal support. And over the years, what I found is that 90% of the people that I've worked with, with Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism, they end up having some degree of adrenal dysfunction. And there's a, you know, just like everything in the body, our thyroid hormones and um, our cortisol and our adrenal glands, there, there's a feedback loop between everything. And so people, when they have hypothyroidism, when they don't have enough thyroid hormone on board, the body will slow down cortisol excretion and metabolism out of the, out of the body to keep some more cortisol on board to kind of help manage the body. And mm. a lot of times people will say, I feel wired and tired and something is off. They go to the doctor, they get a diagnosis of a thyroid issue and they'll get a prescription for thyroid meds and they'll get excited. And they'll be like, okay, finally, I'm gonna feel better. And unfortunately what can happen in many cases is they support their thyroid, which is great, which they need to do, but having that thyroid hormone on board can unmask a cortisol issue, a low cortisol issue, because then the cortisol clearance normalizes or improves. And then they're left with my thyroid is balanced now, but now my cortisol is low and unmasked. And they'll come to me and they say, I we got on thyroid meds and I started to feel better, but then all of a sudden I crashed and I feel even more tired. What is going on? Do I need more thyroid meds? We'll look at their thyroid labs and those will be good. But then if we focus on their stress response, that's what really needs to be brought up. And then on the flip side of that, I'll have people that have come to me and they'll say, I have every thyroid symptom in the book. I have the brain fog, I have the weight gain, but my doctor, you know, they did all the tests you recommend and I don't have a thyroid issue, but here I am, like, can you help me? And in many cases, when people have excess cortisol or that cortisol dysregulation, that stress response, their body will produce more of something known as reverse T3, which is an inactive version of thyroid hormone that will sit in our thyroid receptors, but rather than letting thyroid hormone activate them, it just blocks them. And so essentially a person can become quote unquote hypothyroid without actually having a thyroid disorder because of that stress response. And so, so it's, it's all connected, right? There's a wow. back loop, right? Yeah, that is so interesting. Um, yeah, thanks for, for untangling that because I think it's so easy for people to get confused and, and really, you know, have, even with the best intentions, have a very, very difficult time getting to the root cause. So, you know, just helping people understand all the different avenues and different uh, modes of action that can be at play, I think it's, it's really, really helpful. So let's get into some of the protocols um, in your book, um, replenish, re-energize, revitalize, and rebuild resiliency as the, the primary kind of uh, 
top line headers. Um, so maybe we'll start with replenish and with food. Um, can you outline really what is an optimal adrenal um, diet and some of the core foods and types of foods that we should be focused on consuming and the other and some that we should be focused on omitting from our diets? Absolutely. So I really focus for people with adrenal dysfunction, especially if they have that morning fatigue and low blood pressure in the morning, I will make sure that they're having something for breakfast. And a lot of times it's going to be the adrenal kickstart. This is going to be a half a cup of orange juice, like an upgraded orange juice, where you will add some um, protein powder, you'll add some coconut milk to that and some electrolytes. So the vitamin C in the orange juice is going to support your adrenal function. Adrenals run on vitamin C. This gets depleted when we're under stressed, when um, we're going to get a little bit of glucose to help you with uh, a lot of times people might have low blood sugar in the morning when they're in this state and they'll have blood sugar swings throughout the day. So a little bit of that orange juice will help you raise it, but not too much because we're going to combine it with the protein and fat. And a lot of times people are going to be undernourished in that state. Their body is breaking itself down, right? So they're in that catabolic state. So we're trying to increase their protein intake. And a mm. lot of times this is going to be a critical piece of healing is making sure you have enough protein that the body can utilize for the amino acids so it can repair itself. And then the fats we utilize to help with supporting mitochondrial health and for supporting further blood sugar balance. And the focus is really that you're eating protein and fat. Um, you're eating enough of that. You're eating foods that are low in inflammation. So generally gluten, dairy, and soy-free diet is what I would recommend for people with a lot of blood sugar issues. Sometimes coming off of grains can be helpful as well. And we're focusing on really nutrient-dense foods. So things like organic meats, um, organic vegetables, we get those into our routine. The, you know, there are different schools of thought for how frequently a person should eat. I feel like intermittent fasting is incredibly helpful for a lot of people. And it can be a huge, huge game changer, especially for people, you know, with like maybe some of that high cortisol state, this can be helpful. For people in that low cortisol state, things that are typically like positive stressors, so like our cold plunges, our mm -hmm. aerobic exercise, going on bike rides, even fasting, any kind of you know exercise, these can make you feel worse. And so for a lot of people, we're actually eating more frequently. A lot of times I, the women that um, have come to me through my programs, they're not eating breakfast and then they're waking up at 3 a.m. Like wide mm -hmm. awake with a cortisol surge because they're becoming hypoglycemic. So at first I'm teaching them how to eat enough food and eat snacks throughout the day. Sometimes I'm saying you keep a banana by your bed. So when you get that low blood sugar, you can go back to sleep. And then eventually we can kind of shrink down the window of eating where you're eating mostly during daylight hours, right? At the beginning, you might have to snack a little bit more often, but over the course of four weeks, we're really hoping to get you connected with the circadian rhythm so that you are hungry during the day and not at mm. night, right? Not at night when you should be sleeping. Part of 
part of um, an amazing study that I read was how do you get people to stop night eating and night hunger? And what is, how do you do that? And a big part of that was light therapy, right? So making sure you got plenty of light throughout the day, you don't have any blue lights in your bedroom and you're not exposed to too much blue light at night that can help you reestablish that more um, healthy eating pattern. It does take some time. Yeah. I think, you know, there, there are so many different protocols out there that are, are, you know, swirling around uh, the, the Serengeti of the internet. And, um, and it's hard to know which ones to focus on. But I think, like you say, establishing that foundational layer of good circadian rhythm, that is a great place to start. You just can't lose if you start there because getting enough sleep is going to give you the proper kind of physical and psychological restoration, but it's also going to really upgrade and upregulate insulin sensitivity um, and that's going to manage blood sugar levels. It's absolutely, uh, obviously, uh, you know, very, very good for immune system health, et cetera. So getting that circadian rhythm established, I think you're absolutely right. It is so important. And obviously some of that is about light therapy and sleep architecture. And, you know, I, I know you talk about, you know, blackout shades and also proper temperature at night, keeping a cool room, um, so my wife, Skylar, she doesn't believe in using heat. <laughs> so, so it's always cold in my room at night. And then you just get under the blankets and it, and it tends to warm up. But um, just specifically with on food, um, with protein, for example, is there a certain simple formula that you use or advocate in terms of how many grams of protein people should get vis-a-vis their body weight? Um, so one gram per kilogram up to one gram per pound, somewhere within that range is actually what I'll recommend it. People typically think like you need more protein if you're a bodybuilder, that's correct. But if you're in a catabolic state, you are essentially a bodybuilder. So you actually need more protein than you probably think. And so a lot of women will say, I'm eating enough protein. I'm eating enough protein. And they'll have like one egg for breakfast, which is like six grams, right? And then they'll maybe have another 10 to 15 grams at dinner and have a light salad. And I'm like 21 grams of protein and you weigh, you know, 150 pounds. The math doesn't quite add up there. And a lot of the things I'll do is I'll have them do a protein shake in the morning and then they'll say, oh, I'm sleeping through the night again. All I had to do was add a protein shake and it's just like, you know, 15 to 20 grams of protein that you add into your routine. And that's what the body needs to create um, amino acids and to help you create, you know, L-tryptophan and melatonin and all these beautiful things that help you sleep. If you just get enough protein, it can be a really, really big game changer. So I encourage people to think about their ideal body weight and do some experimenting, right? See what works for you. Um, A lot of times, of course, if you have kidney disease, Um, things of that nature. You don't want to do excess protein and check in with your doctor. But generally, most people I would say are not getting enough protein that have these symptoms that have come that I've come to work with. Yeah, yeah, I actually started supplementing with 5-HTP, which is tryptophan. Um, And tryptophan, like you mentioned, is the precursor for melatonin. Um, And obviously, melatonin is important to induce a sense of grogginess and sleepiness. And it's had really 
positive impacts um, on me. So, um, you know, but of course everyone is, is, is different and has to be their own end of one experiment to, to, to find the right balances. What about fats? Are there some key healthy go-to fats uh, in your diet or ones that you recommend around uh, treating adrenal dysfunction? Definitely looking at getting more fat into your diet is going to help you full longer. It's going to support the health of your mitochondria, which utilize fatty acids for energy. And I love uh, coconut oil, coconut milk. I love avocado and salmon. So these are some great sources of fat. If you could add them into your routine, you're going to feel a lot better. Your brain's going to be very happy with you too. And, and even your hair. People are always saying, "Why? How do, how do you get your hair so shiny?" I'm like, "Coconut milk, <laughs> good fats, yeah. good protein." And I think, if I'm correct, you were losing your hair at one point, and now it looks as lustrous as any hair could possibly be. <laughs> I was. That was actually being a Leo. That was one of the key driving factors for me to really push on getting diagnosed. It was like I could deal with like. I could, I could deal with the brain fog and the fatigue and all these things for <laughs> years, but then my, I started to lose my hair and I was like, this is not normal in my twenties. And a lot of women with this stress response, with thyroid issues, they're losing hair as well. And this is a very common symptom of being stressed out. And sometimes it's getting that stress response under balance and making sure that you have plenty of fat and protein on board and that can give you your hair back. So do it for vanity, if not for anything else. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> that, that is generally a good motivator. Well, I love your list of fats in the book because uh, the whole list is everything that I love to eat. Um, with the, maybe the exception, the smash fish. Sometimes the like the small bottom of the food chain oily fish, even though they're great for omega threes, they're not necessarily my my absolute favorite ones. Um, more like the sardines and the anchovies, yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, but salmon is a is a good um, source, especially um, if you uh, you know I eat it you know a couple of times a week. So that that's um, great. My husband um, doesn't love the smash fish either, as as especially when I take them on road trips with him and I'll say, like, okay, I got my salmon here, or, you know, I've, I've got, I've got my sardines here. I got my canned salmon yeah. and I've got my, um, boiled eggs. So not for everybody, but there's a list of things where people can choose from and you don't have to eat yeah. something you don't like. There's usually enough things for people to choose yeah, from. Yeah. The anchovies in herring don't always go over on a long car trip. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but, you know, in a long-term relationship, maybe <laughs> <laughs> I certainly have one. Um, what about gut support? What can you recommend in terms of, uh, really feeding your gut? So, uh, such that the kind of intestinal barrier is maintained and we don't get into these inflammatory states. So a lot of times people in that stress state will have low levels of stomach acid and there may be proteins that are challenging to digest. So getting off of gluten and dairy are two of the recommendations that I might have right off the bat. And that could be very helpful for lowering that gut inflammation. And then I actually utilize some supplements throughout the protocol to help support a stress response. 
one of the things that occurs in people who have been under stress for a while is they have a depletion in something known as secretory IgA, which is an immunoglobulin in the gut that helps us keep the gut immune system healthy and keeps our respiratory tract healthy as well. So we're not as likely to pick up respiratory infections. We're not as likely to pick up gut infections. When this is depleted, you're going to be the person that goes out to a restaurant with a group of friends. You guys are all eating the same thing, yet you're the one that comes back home with food poisoning where everybody else is fine, right? And mm. you're going to be the person that is going to be sensitive to more foods. Whatever microbes you might have living in your gut, they're more likely to, um, to take over, especially the pathogenic ones. And you may hold on to pathogens that other people might normally clear. So part of what I do is I recommend utilizing Sarcomyces boulardii, which is a beneficial yeast that raises your secretory IgA in your gut. And so then you have the gut of a person that's not stressed out and you end up overcoming some of these infections naturally and you're not as sensitive to foods and you're not as likely to catch new infections of, of various kinds. And this kind of mm. gives you a little bit more resilience to you know, day-to-day -day stressors that may be in our environment or even that are living inside of your gut. So that's been one of the kind of secrets of how I was able to get my protocols for adrenal health to work a lot faster compared to some of my colleagues um, 10 years ago when I first came out with, with some of the adrenal protocols was just you raise your secretory IgA levels and that way you're going to be more resilient to the gut stressors. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I have a, uh, probiotic coconut yogurt that is, that has Saccharomyces boulardii Perfect. and some other probiotics in it. Um, and I often kind of break fast, um, with a couple scoops of that and some walnuts, um, and a little bit of, uh, like sea salt and maybe a couple of blueberries. And it's got, it kind of checks all of the boxes on your list, <laughs> uh, for, for good, um, adrenal health and it's uh, it's also really really tasty so it's not I'm not making any sacrifices um I, i'm wondering what some of the other key supplements are um as part of your protocol that can support healthy adrenal function one of the things i love to talk about and recommend is adaptogens this is a class of herbs that helps to balance our stress response so if you have cortisol that's too high it'll help normalize it. If you have cortisol that's too low, it'll help bring it up versus, you know, trying to utilize pharmaceuticals of you don't have enough cortisol. Well, let's give you hydrocortisone to, to try to get that um, cortisol curve. So you utilize these beautiful herbs and a lot of times they have various benefits. Uh, they've been, there's, you know, dozens of them out there. And I share a few examples in my book, different ones can help with different things. We have like shatavari and maca that are really great for libido. You know, ashwagandha, rhodiola can be very helpful for anxiety, energy, and sleep. Vitex can be incredible for women with um, ADHD or women with hormonal issues. So all of them have their unique personalities and choosing one or choosing a combination of the different adaptogens can make you just a little bit more resilient no matter what's being thrown your way. So I always like joke with people that 
everybody around you becomes less annoying when you get on a walk-ins <laughs> because you just, you know, you have a little bit extra patience and you're not as triggered. And it's amazing what an herb can do for us, right? Yeah, it's like they're the herbs for Stoics. They 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 help to create the the space between stimuli and response, right? So they should be called the the Victor Frankl adaptogens or whatever. Um, uh, yeah, it's just sometimes it's just a few extra seconds to say, do I want to yell at that person or do I want to take a deep breath? And the adaptogens can be like that little thing right in between that that gives you a few extra seconds. Absolutely, and, and you know a lot of our stress is based around kind of our emotional reactions to things and our emotional reactions are often tied to our snap judgments of events and not really the underlying event itself so anything that we can do to sort of create that space that allows us to step back and say okay what is the nature of this event and let me actually rigorously study it in a non-judgmental way before I have a reaction. And, um, and this is, you know, training, this is like training biceps, except you're training your mind. Um, and then you can also, you know, help to supplement that training with, as you say, you know, some of these adaptogens, rhodiola and, and, and ashwagandha. And uh, those are my two go-tos anyways. Um, what about some other ones? Like I know you talk about carnitine and magnesium, um, and vitamin B and, and C, are, are, are those important? Oh, absolutely. So what I really focus on is replenishing the things that get depleted when we're under a lot of stress. These are going to be our B vitamins, right? And so when we don't have enough B vitamins on board, we can have issues with migraines, with headaches, with low energy, with tension. And getting these on board is going to be incredibly helpful. Vitamin C gets really depleted during an, a stress response, especially that chronic stress response, getting more vitamin C on board, you're going to have, you know, more collagen production in your skin, you're going to look better, you're going to feel better, your immune system is going to work better. And then focusing on magnesium. So magnesium has so many roles in the body. Like I think I could talk about magnesium for six hours i will <laughs> spare you the details but yeah but like, let's let's put a pin in that because i want to do an episode specifically devoted to magnesium so put it. that in your calendar sometime over the summer <laughs> let's do it I, i'm down okay. for it um great but, but really for people when they are magnesium deficient they'll they'll be they'll have cramps they'll have anxiety they'll have sleep issues women will say they have menstrual cramps and sometimes uh, just taking a magnesium supplement can be such a huge game changer. I like using magnesium in supplement form, but I love using magnesium as an Epsom salt bath. So having yeah. that in your daily routine, you can go in being the most like stressed out, achy, annoyed, um, you know, irritated person, and you sit in an Epsom salt bath long enough, and you're going to come out calm, relaxed ready to wind down and your body's not going to hurt anymore. So this is something you can do one habit, make the time for it. I would recommend that. Mm, that's such a good um, piece of advice. I think also some kind of deliberate heat therapy in the evening can be helpful to go to bed, um, magnesium notwithstanding, because your body 
needs to go into sort of a lower its core temperature when you're sitting in a hot bath or a hot sauna. And of course, your body, when you go to sleep, is, I think it's, you know, somewhere one or two degrees lower um, than your daytime, your normal daytime temperature. And so by taking, by engaging in some sort of deliberate heat therapy in the evening, that can help your body temperature start to lower, which is helpful for sleep, if I've got that right. Oh, absolutely. And it's such a game changer for people. So what I'll recommend is kind of heating up your body with like a bath or a shower or a foot soak. If you don't have a bathtub, some people have said, what do I do? I don't have a bath. I want to try this. Put some Epsom salts in a little foot bath and and soak for that in 15 minutes or so. And that'll, that'll actually help to increase um, your body temperature and help you kind of get into that sleep state. So you get, you get out of the, the warmth and then your body temperature will drop a little bit and you want to sleep in a room. Generally, I would say 65 to 70 degrees. For some people, it might be even 60 to 65 degrees in a room that's cool and dark. And I'll say about the half of the people who do this, who said, I, I can't sleep. I need to rely on melatonin. I need to rely on sleep aids or Benadryl. About half of them will say just doing some of these lifestyle things just getting some Epsom salts and just just being um, in a warm bath and followed by a cold, dark room, they'll be able to sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering about hormone therapy and when, if ever, it is appropriate um, to engage in hormone therapy as a treatment for adrenal dysfunction. Hormone therapy can be incredibly helpful for people. And I've worked with a lot of hormone protocols. So utilizing like pregnenolone, the mother hormone and DHEA. So I would look at a person's adrenal profile and I would say, okay, you don't have enough here. So we're going to dose you higher on this and a little bit lower on this and kind of do circadian dosing of these hormones throughout the day to try to kind of alter that cortisol curve and then some physicians may recommend hydrocortisone or they may recommend glandulars. Um, a lot of these things can be incredibly helpful. I would recommend that people generally work with a practitioner under their guidance for that hormone therapy because some people, you know, some women may be very sensitive to DHEA, for example, and they may only tolerate either tiny doses or none of it at all, right? And then some people may be very sensitive to glandulars and that they can have some of that if they if they utilize the whole cortex adrenal extracts, they could end up with um, getting some of that adrenaline hormone into their system. And if you ever try to take pure adrenaline, like it does not feel good, right? <laughs> so, like I've had women reaching out to me and saying they've had panic attacks because they, they try to self-medicate with... Um, some of these glandular extracts. And so I think there's a time and place for it. It can be a big game changer. If you're working with a practitioner that's knowledgeable, that's doing your lab testing. And, um, you know, and for some, some women I've worked with, they, they can't do it. They might have estrogen dominance. And so the hormones just overconvert to estrogen. And really the root cause for me is stress. So if you can mm. take all these hormones, right. But you don't, address the root cause with which is stress, then you're just kind of using a band-aid approach. So my my program is really focused on helping you. You can take hormones or not take hormones. Like I don't base it on your lab values. I base it on your symptoms. 
So we have 92% of women that have gone through it that will say, my brain fog has greatly improved or my sleep issues have improved. Um, my fatigue, 89% of people will have less fatigue over the course of three to four weeks. And utilizing the hormone protocols that I used to use, it was like three months to two years where you mm. would see the same benefits that I'm seeing in four weeks. So wow. I guess, yes, you can use hormones if you're working with your practitioner, if you're already on them, that's great. I hope they work well for you. If they don't work well for you, consider doing you know, really this stress response approach with the safety signals and supporting, you know, supporting your adrenals, supporting your mitochondria, supporting your blood sugar to get yourself in a more balanced state. Yeah. Well, let's talk about mitochondria for a second. So in your re-energize section of your protocols, you specifically address how we can support mitochondrial health. I talk about mitochondria a lot on the show. So I think listeners have a general sense of Great. what's happening in that little jelly bean shaped organelle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so what are some of the things that we can do to support mitochondrial health? So if you notice the abbreviation for my book is ATP adrenal transformation right. protocol. It's no coincidence, right? So, <laughs> yeah. um, so to really help support our mitochondria, a lot of the things we do for the health of our adrenals are going to help anyway. So B vitamins, vitamin C and magnesium, electrolytes are incredibly helpful for our mitochondrial function. Getting connected with the circadian rhythm, that's going to be incredibly helpful. Melatonin helps us repair our mitochondria as well, if we have enough of that at nighttime. And then I also, um, you know, I try to be creative with the supplements. I don't want people to take like thousands of supplements. I try to pick ones that are very targeted, right? And so that they have um, multiple benefits, which is incredible that some supplements do. So rhodiola can be helpful for mitochondrial health. D-ribose is incredibly helpful mm -hmm. for mitochondrial health. And I use that as part of an electrolyte blend. And then carnitine. Carnitine is something that is really incredibly helpful for converting, helping us drive our fatty acids so that the mitochondria can create more um, energy from them. And it is something that people will say they start using it and their brain fog gets better. Um, if they use acetyl L-carnitine and they'll feel much better with their muscles, they'll have more muscle strength, less muscle wasting if they utilize the L-carnitine version, which is more for muscle support. And so some of these things you can do, and I feel like this is what has helped my program get really good results because a lot of people with that fatigue state, with the adrenal dysfunction, their mitochondria are also going to be impacted and we do need to support them to really restore our energy levels rather than just focusing on, you know, utilizing some hormones, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And then there's all of these different protocols that can stimulate mitobiogenesis or mitophagy which is sort of the mitochondrial version of autophagy where dysfunctional mitochondria break down um, and you want them to break down if they're dysfunctional. So, um, you know, this is where, you know, sometimes cold showers or fasting or some of these other protocols come into play. Um, 
you know, I am a 16-8 protocol faster, but I, I think that that's individual to me. And as you say, some people do need to be eating breakfast, um, you know, high quality fats and proteins in the morning. So, um, yeah, anyways, it's, it's, it's different for everyone. Now, I, I have like the question that everyone's going to want to know about, which is caffeine. So what role does caffeine play um, uh, in the world of the adrenals? And do we have to give up coffee to get better adrenal health? Oh, so that's such a great question. And in, in my old adrenal protocols, I used to recommend quitting caffeine. And then I had some people that were not very happy with me. And they said, <laughs> I gave up my caffeine and I'm still exhausted, right? And I'm still waking up all night where I thought like caffeine was the cause that they were tired and that they were waking up all night. And it's true, caffeine can prevent us from getting good sleep. It can prevent us from having that beautiful melatonin production in the evenings if we drink it too late. If we drink caffeine too early in the morning, caffeine can cause us to drive up our cortisol. And so then our body gets the feedback signal that we don't need to make our own cortisol. So it mm. can be something that does interfere with healthy, um, healthy adrenal cortisol secretion throughout the day. But I'm not going to recommend people get off of it. Rather than that, I, su I recommend supporting your energy production. And so perhaps maybe you're not drinking your coffee after 3 p.m., right? Maybe you move that a little bit earlier. Or maybe you're giving your body an opportunity to create some of that cortisol naturally by stepping outside, by having that adrenal kickstart drink, by adding some sea salt to so your cortisol increases naturally and then waiting a little bit to have your caffeine, right? So these are some of the strategies to reawaken that connection. And, you know, one of, one of my key goals for people is to be able to be more resilient and to do all the things. So you should be able to fast, right? Once you get your L-carnitine on board, you're going to be able to fast. And once you have your, um, one, one big thing that I think not a lot of people are aware of is that People who, um, who have trouble with fasting and have exercise intolerance, a lot of times they need mitochondrial support and they may be deficient in L-carnitine. So getting that on board first and connecting with a circadian rhythm and doing some of this healing to get you feeling amazing, you're going to be able to tolerate stress. So you can do the bike rides, you can do the fasting, you can do all of those things, right? Rather than feeling drained by every time you try to go to the gym. And you're trying to do all the right things and you don't know why, because people are saying, just quit coffee and you'll feel better, or just do more exercise and you'll feel better, or just, you know, just fast and you'll feel better. And you're that person that's saying, doing all the things, but I just feel worse all the time. And there's a good chance that's it's your um, that it's your cortisol and your mitochondrial function that needs support. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about diet, um, and supplements, but I want to address this idea that's prevalent throughout the book of how we send safety signals to ourselves. So essentially we are in this fight or flight state, which is associated with a hormonal response. And then that can become chronic, uh, and our perceived sense of threat becomes sort of out of whack. Um, but one way of addressing that is through 
positive self-talk and through you know what you talk a lot about in your revitalized section of um of the book so can you talk a little bit about how we can send safety signals to our stress to ourselves to relieve stress absolutely and i think a lot of us i don't know i grew up where there was a lot of yelling right and (laughs) yelling just somebody yells at you that kind of puts you in that fight or flight response and working with myself as well as other people you kind of realize that some of the messages that are in your subconscious, some of the things you're saying to yourself, maybe aren't the kindest, right? So you wake up late and you miss a job interview because you have chronic fatigue. And so what do you say to yourself? You call yourself lazy. You say mean things to yourself. And just some of that negative self-talk can shift us into that survival mode, right? And a big part of what I recommend for people to do is getting out of those stuck thought patterns. So saying kind things to yourself, rewiring some of those beliefs. And, you know, you, you kind of, even if you don't believe it right now, you kind of fake it till you make it, right? So I'll say <laughs> if you're sick, one of the things that can be really helpful for you to say is every day in every way, I'm feeling better and better and having some mm. of these positive affirmations. If you're feeling like the world is a threat to you and you're feeling overwhelmed, one of the fastest ways to get out of the overwhelm could be by focusing on gratitude and just intentionally taking a few minutes a day to think about what you're thankful for, who you're thankful for. And hey, if you even have a time, maybe send somebody a message, an email, or give them a quick call, let them know that you're thankful for them. That's going to be really helpful to shift you into that in that safe zone of, I feel good and out of that survival zone. And then some of the other ways to kind of revitalize and to find that joie de vivre for people, you know, in my experience, I found a lot of times people are exhausted, not because they're doing too much, but they're not doing enough of the right things. So they're not finding the joy in their everyday life. And I give people a prescription, the people in my program, I'll say, this is your prescription to do something that you enjoy. And it's crazy that a lot of times many of us need that permission because we're sort of stuck in being productive and taking care of everybody else. You know, maybe we have children, maybe we have jobs, maybe we have elderly parents or, you know, all these pets that that are freeloading off of us and and need our care attention. And by the time the day's over, you find that you haven't done anything for yourself. And so taking some time to connect with what brings you joy? Is it sitting on your porch and sipping tea? Is it painting? Is it connecting with friends? Is it, you know, what is it? Is it scuba diving? And incorporating that into your day-to-day life. So just pleasurable activities. And this can be such a huge game changer that a lot of the people that have gone through the program will say, I didn't realize I was really doing nothing for myself for decades. And I mm-hmm. just, this is, this is amazing through the gratitude, through the messages to myself, through the pleasurable activities. Like I have joy again and I have energy because of that joy. Yeah. Yeah. In, in Kabor Mate's kind of recent book, he does, he gives a lot of examples around how people pleasers or people that are constantly caring for others and prioritizing others and other people's needs above themselves, they tend to have higher incidences of disease themselves because they're never really taking care of themselves. And it, it always reminds me of kind of the 
the adage that exists across all virtually every spiritual tradition, which is the golden rule, love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, to actually fulfill that equation, you actually have to love yourself, <laughs> right? You're right. <laughs> um, so, you know, part of that is really putting time, as you say, uh, aside for, for self-care and, you know, don't feel like that's indulgent because how are you going to bring your best self to the world, to your children, to your pets, <laughs> to your community, et cetera, you know, if, if you're not well? Um, so, you know, th there should be no shame or, uh, around, you know, putting aside time for, for self-care. And, you know, you, I love the fact that you talk about creativity in your book and, um, and finding ways and time to cultivate one's own creativity, you know, whether that's drawing or painting or, you know, I'm a very, very amateur piano player, but just, you know, those moments where you get to set aside time and do something like that, you're really, you're really inhabiting the present and you're moving outside out of this endless comparison with the outside world. And you're just absolutely focused right here, right now. And I find, um, there's a wonderful paper written by, I think it was Dan Gilbert and, uh, Killingsworth, I can't remember his first name, but it's called a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. Oh yes. And and um and they go through, you know, all this data that shows essentially if you're not thinking about the thing that you're doing and your mind is off kind of projecting into the future, sort of creating anticipated memories that are often negative. Um, this can lead to a lot of stress, but also just to a lot of unhappiness. But if you're able to find times where you're actually yoking intention and action or essentially what you're thinking about and what you're doing, um, you know, that can lead to a lot of contentment, a lot of sort of parasympathetic activity, et cetera. So, um, so I really love that you talk about that. Uh, the last thing I want to ask you about is, is the breath, um, because you know, what we're talking about a lot is the, the functions of the autonomic nervous system, essentially everything that's happening in this organism that's below the crust of consciousness. And there's the sympathetic nervous system, which is associated with some of the hormones that we're talking about. Um, and we all feel it, you know, where our respiratory rate and our heart rate starts to increase and blood goes to our extremities, maybe even our pupils dilate, et cetera, versus parasympathetic, which is more rest and digest and the blood is in the gut, et cetera. And, you know, we're always trying to find, again, that happy medium between the yin and yang of our organism there. And uh, one way to access the subconscious or the, the autonomic nervous system is through breath, which generally happens subconsciously, but we can actually apply top-down pressure on that through regulating breath. So I wonder, do you use breath as a protocol? And, and if so, do you have a particular breathing practice that you could recommend that people use to give themselves that safety signal? So it's, it's really amazing because our body is like this feedback machine, right? And so I'm a big proponent of doing something like neurofeedback or biofeedback, right? And you can get really incredible doctors and psychologists to work with you or purchase some machines that you can wire to yourself. And you can also do your own biofeedback for free, right? 
just by slowing down (laughs) your breath. So when you're in that stress response, you're, you start breathing quicker, you know, your heart rate increases and all of these things. And so you can control that, right? You can take that over and just send the body a safety signal just by slowing down your breath. So I love meditation. I love yoga for those purposes. Some people like chant, like yodeling or prayer or chanting. These are all some great ways that you can incorporate into your routine where you consciously slow down your breath. Probably one of my kind of favorite thing to do is to focus on your heart rate and connect with your heart and try to connect your breath with your heart rate. And then you'll start Mm. seeing that your heart rate might actually slow down. So this is probably one of the, my favorite techniques to kind of tap into that. If I'm feeling a little bit off, a little bit stressed, I'll just try to really tune in, pay attention to my heart and see where my heart's at. Mm, I love it. Well, Isabella, thank you so much for um, all of your work uh, for many years, all of your books, but particularly um, this one, the Adrenal Transformation Protocol, um, and uh, and it has just a fantastic program. I w- was also um, flipping through a number of the recipes that uh, that I can't wait to uh, to experiment with, and of course the Adrenal Kickstart, which I'll, I will give you my feedback on um, to next week when I get it, when I get it going. And but you're just such a a, a wonderful educator. And, um, and I'm so appreciative of your work. So tell us where people can, um, keep abreast of everything that you're doing and, um, and, and find you kind of day to day. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me and for the kind words and such a pleasure to connect and just share how to gain more vitality and energy in your life. I I'm on thyroidpharmacist.com is my website. I'm on Instagram under Isabella Wentz PharmD, Facebook under Thyroid Pharmacist, and my books are available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, wherever books are sold. Nice. Well, Isabella Wentz, I will take you up on the magnesium episode offer. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so let's just say uh, to be continued. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Isabella Wentz. Her new book, Adrenal Transformation Protocol, offers a recovery plan to heal and reverse adrenal dysfunction. It can produce profound improvements within weeks or even days. Now, if you enjoyed this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and if so inclined, leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you may have a sense for how much effort we put into the show's creation And we really do our best to keep advertisers to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way to do so is subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. And you can check it out for free for 14 days. No strings attached at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly with suggestions or criticism of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. 
Lastly, but not leastly, I'd like to thank all the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jake Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Savannah Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>